0: Amen. You guys may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of 1 Timothy. We are um, starting chapter 2 this morning. And so we uh, really, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at prayer specifically. But if you've been following with us so far, if I were to kind of sum up chapter one for us, right and, and, and again, just remember where, where we are, remember contextually, and I'm going to bring in a little bit more context toward the end of, of the sermon this morning. But Paul is writing this letter uh, to a pastor that he is commissioned to a particular church, the Church of Ephesus. Okay, Timothy's pastoring that church along with the, the rest of the Ephesian elders. Uh, there are things going on in that society uh, at the time um, that uh, are having an impact on that local church. And so the apost- uh, uh, Timothy, the pastor there, uh, is really uh, spending time waiting through, and we see this again in chapter one, he's waiting through um, uh, rebuking false teachers, rebuking false teaching, right? There's kind of a a, a defense that he's been charged uh, with by Paul. Uh, there's this sense that he may be discouraged or even that the apostle Paul has to continue to remind him to stay there, to stay present for the sake of the congregation of Ephesus. We've looked at, Uh, church history and how church history has told us that um, Timothy did in fact stay at Ephesus uh, all the way until when he was martyred uh, in society. And um, and so you you really get a sense of all of that just in chapter one itself. And we're going to continue to see that as we move on through the rest of the book. But in chapter two, we begin to see Uh, this shape of corporate worship, if you will, because again, this letter wasn't written to just Timothy. The letter was written to Timothy to be read amongst the gathered church of Ephesus here. And so there was an understanding on the apostle Paul's part that he wasn't just addressing Timothy, but he was addressing the church, right? And so a lot of what we're going to even begin to work through, we want to think, uh, starting here in chapter 2, we want to think through it both on a corporate level, how we're connected to one another in Christ and how we function as God's church. We want the scriptures to shape the contours of that for us, okay? But we're also still don't want to neglect to apply it to ourselves as individual Christians as well, and we will uh, work, and I'll try to make note of that as we go along. But this morning, we're going to look particularly at the priority of prayer. And like I said, the next two weeks, really, uh, we're going to uh, look at how the Apostle Paul is, is making that uh, a, a central and critical uh, ministry for this church in Ephesus. And, and he wants uh, Timothy as the pastor to, to set this as a priority. And so let me read for us the first four verses, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will um, we'll jump in. Okay, so the Apostle Paul... Again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he pins these words to Timothy and to the church of Ephesus. He says, first of all then, I urge, okay, and that word urge there is the same word uh, uh, in the Greek that he used to tell Timothy to stay put at the beginning of chapter 1, okay? It's that same word. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Verse 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Remember that phrase, God our Savior from the greeting. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for your word, thank you for allowing us to come and spend time in it, Lord. We ask that your word would, again, shape us as your gathered church and shape us as individual Christians, Lord. We want to be conformed more. Day by day, we want to be conformed more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we trust that as your word goes out this morning, that your spirit is doing that very thing. You're building us for eternity, and we praise you for it. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first thing, if you're, if you're jotting down notes that I'd have you see uh, in our text this morning, is, uh, is that priority should be given to prayer both publicly and privately, okay? Priority should be given to prayer both publicly and privately, and, and certainly that may seem obvious to us, but I suspect, and this is true of my own life, that prayer can often be the very thing that we neglect in our own lives, right? We, we can so easily begin to operate out of our own strength, uh, out of our own wisdom. Uh, we can lose our own mindfulness as it relates to our dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God, right? And so functionally, uh, we tend to forget this easily, although we may know this uh, from an intellectual place. But priority should be given to prayer, uh, both publicly when we're gathered and it should be given uh, uh, Priority uh, in our individual lives as well, right? And, and it's priority, and not time, that the apostle Paul is leaning in. It's not about the amount of time, but it is about the centrality of it, and we see that in verse one. Okay, and 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 it's interesting to me that that. When we get into chapter 2 here, and as we begin to look through the corporate, uh, or we begin to look through uh, how Paul wants corporate worship to be organized, the very first thing that he speaks to here in chapter 2 is prayer. He doesn't speak to evangelism. He speaks to prayer. And, and I make that note because we see and we must see that worship Biblical worship is the most important thing that we do as image bearers of God. Worship is the most important thing that we do as image bearers. Each and every one of us was created by God to delight in God through our worship of Him. Everything else flows from a Christian's worship of the triune God. It's the very fuel of our evangelism, right? Our worship, our devotion to the Lord fuels that, shapes that, helps us navigate that, helps us to strike the right balance in our evangelism, right? Our worship is important, right? This warm dedication to God uh, precedes obedience to Him, right? That's not to say that there aren't apathetic times in our lives when, when sin cools us off, but the overarching, overarching trajectory of our lives should be one of ever-increasing worship, and prayer is included in that, which is the focus of our text this morning, right? Prayer is an aspect of worship. Now, Paul says in this first verse here, the first part of verse one, first of all, then, I urge, again, note that word, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. All right, again, stop there for a moment and, and just think back, and, and we're reminding you of this each and every week, but think about the, the this church body. Think of the, the strife in, in this church body, not even just outside in Ephesus at large, but think about the strife even inside the the church of Ephesus. Think about the political climate. This, this was penned when Nero, wicked persecutor of Christians, was emperor. Now think of the elders' tasks, which, some of which Clark highlighted for us last week and, and some of which we'll cover more in, in, the, in the weeks to come. But think about that setting for a moment and compare it a little bit to where we find ourselves as a society. And the reason why we should do that is because we, we need to remember that this this is, and, and, and if you flip on the news for any length of time, you can tell that our society at large and many of our churches that are influenced by society are in a perpetual state of unrest. But we need to understand that this isn't the first time there's been unrest, right? Unrest in the church, unrest in society. It may be the only time that we perhaps have experienced it in our own lives to the extent that many of us are... Experienced it, but this isn't the first time that we could take note of the the uh, the ever increasing desire in a culture in a in a church that's been become anemic. This, uh, instead of responding to the culture, this is not the first time that we've seen um, just lavish displays of of immorality. This isn't nothing new. Is what is what we need to think about when we're thinking through the context of a letter like 1 Timothy being written. And in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of sin, in the midst of unrest and and chaos, there's always a temptation to despair, right? There's always a temptation to retreat, to run away. As we've seen that, that young Timothy was being tempted to, just from what we know in the first chapter... But I would guess, and I can't prove this, but I would guess that that could have been the, the mood of the rest of the elders on the elder team as well, perhaps. Could have been the mood of some of the Christians that were weary in the battle, in, in, this, in this culture battle outside the church of Ephesus and in this culture battle inside the church. And, and maybe that's where you are. Maybe you're, you're tempted to despair in your circumstances, Maybe there's this paralyzing weight that, that that you just constantly feel this pressure because of where we find ourselves in society. And maybe today you need to hear the Holy Spirit-inspired words of the Apostle Paul, right, given 2,000-plus years ago to this church called Ephesus. Right? And maybe you need to hear that instruction handed handed down to you from God, and that instruction is pray. It's pray. Speak to the Lord in faith. Take your cares, take your anxieties, take your sins to the Lord. Take your concern about your loved ones to the Lord. Take the cares of this world to the one who rules over the world, right? Whose throne and whose kingdom can't be shaken, can't be toppled over. Take, take it to the Lord. Speak to Him. And as we're thinking through prayer and as we're thinking through this cyclical nature of this kind of cosmic battle, knowing that what we face and what we wrestle with in our own soul is nothing new, evaluate yourself and how you respond to the heat and the pressures of life. Your prayer life can can give you insight into the warmness or the coolness of your walk with the Lord. Are you walking in the thorns and thistles of this life? Are you walking in this dependent posture upon the Holy Spirit of God? Or, as we can so often do, are we professing dependence upon Him while functionally striving apart from Him? But think for a minute, not just even on an individual basis, but let's think for a moment on the corporate nature of this letter because we want to evaluate even our our gathered assembly in light of the Word of God. Remember, we want our theology, we want the the Scripture to shape the way we function as we're gathered. We want the Scripture to shape the way that we function as individuals as well. But does our Lord's Day service, does it emphasize prayer? Does it give priority to prayer? It's a legitimate question for us to ask as well. The very urgency that Paul writes with, here beginning in chapter 2, implies a priority and it implies a consistency. And and there's a few things that we need to see as it relates to our prayer life that I just want to mention, and we're going to see these things implied in in the rest of our text this morning, but I just want to specifically mention them up front, okay? Prayer... It acknowledges our limitations. Okay, Prayer acknowledges our limitations. And in doing so, the other side to that coin is that it acknowledges our triune God's sovereignty as well. If God is sovereign over all things, including everything that seems like chaos to us, everything that seemed like chaos in the church of Ephesus and the city of Ephesus there, if God is sovereign even over that, why wouldn't we pray to him? Why wouldn't we pray to him? Like our very prayers acknowledge that. It acknowledges that we're not in control and that God, who is over all things, right, is in charge. Secondly, and this, this comes from the sovereignty of God, but prayer is effective. It's, a fa- it's, just not, it's not some busybody exercise that God left us with to toil with this side of eternity. Prayer is effective, God uses the ordained means of prayer to accomplish, to truly accomplish His plan and purpose in our world. In this world that we just sang about, which is the Father's world. Then another thing that I think we can see just by Paul commending it in the midst of tumultuous circumstances is that prayer produces by the Spirit of God a stillness and a quietness in our soul, in our inner person. And I mention that again because of the conflict the church was experiencing. You find stillness, you find quietness with spending time speaking, speaking to God. So prayer should be a priority. It should be a priority for us as individuals, it should be a priority for us is the church as well. But secondly, we see from our text, is that a well-rounded prayer life, and I'll explain that a little bit more, but a well-rounded prayer life showcases a well-rounded Christian. A well-rounded prayer life showcases a well-rounded Christian. Keep looking at verse 1 with me because Paul uses four different words there as it relates to prayer. He says, supplications, prayers intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, distinguishing between all of these, in my opinion, is just about impossible because there's so much overlap between them. Um, I'll try to give a a, a few handles on them, Um, but before I do that, I want us to zoom out because I think Paul is making a bigger point Uh, than just evaluating those specific words and all the differences in them. I think Paul is telling us, and he's telling, you know, Timothy, the church of Ephesus, he's telling us 2,000 plus years later, he's telling us to pay attention to the various tones of the Bible as we pray. He's telling us to pay attention to the different voices of the Bible. It's the Scripture that should inform our prayer life. So we need to notice all the different ways in which the Scripture gives voice to our prayers. Take, for instance, the Psalms, okay? The various Psalms in the Bible. You have Psalms of lament, you have Psalms of thanksgiving, you have Psalms of praise, you have Psalms of wisdom. You have imprecatory psalms, which are prayers that were prayed for God to destroy His enemies, right? And, and these prayers were mostly set to a, a melody. But just as our singing should capture the various tones of the Bible, so should our praying, right? Our, so should our praying. We see Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tell us this very thing as it relates to the comings and goings of life, just how God has ordained this world. And you guys know this, Ecclesiastes chapter three. First seven verses, right? For everything, there's a season, There's a season. There's a time for every matter under the sun. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. There's a time to plant. There's a time to pluck up what's planted. There's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build up, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. Here we see the apostle Paul give instruction to the Roman church Romans twelve fifteen rejoice with those who rejoice, and he seems say weep with those who weep. I think a bigger picture for us for uh, of 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 supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings is that we need to um, take note of the vast amounts of vocabulary, the vast amounts of moods, the vast amounts of emotions, according to the Scripture, that qualify as prayer, right? We have different forms of prayer for the different seasons of life. For instance, this morning, some of you have suffered immensely. Some of you are presently suffering at no fault of your own even now. And while we have a lot to be thankful for, and we should be thankful, right? The Scripture gives voice to our thankfulness. My question is, are you utilizing the laments of Scripture? Are you you voicing in faith your complaints to the Lord? Did you know you could do that? All right, your complaint of faith can be just as acceptable to God as your voice of thanksgiving. So are you paying attention to the tones of Scripture? Are you paying attention to the, the words of Scripture, the voices of Scripture? Are you utilizing those words? Are you making those words your own as you pray to the Lord about the things that are burdening you? Now look at the words for a moment. I'm going to attempt to define them somewhat. Or at least note some of the differences, I guess. But we see the word supplication. There, there's urgency in in these types of prayers. From what I found, there can often be, when you see this used in Scripture, there can often be a mourning that that's associated with it. In the Bible, you, you see it frequently tied to genuine repentance. You you see it tied as well to to deliverance from suffering, right? It's a petitionary type of prayer, if you will. You see the word prayers there? That seems to me to just to be a more broad term related to the words around it, but I don't quite know how that is distinguished from the surrounding words exactly. You see the word intercessions, Right, which is another petitionary prayer, kind of like supplication, but it's usually prayer or almost always prayer on behalf of others. Right? And it's what Christ is doing for us right now, seated at the right hand of the Father. Right? To pray as an intercessor on behalf of another person is to, uh, to be like your Savior, is to do an act that your Savior is presently doing for all of His children. And you see that word thanksgivings. Right? That Greek word here in verb form was used by Jesus when he instituted the Lord's Supper and he gave thanks. We see that in, in Luke chapter 22. Right? The, the finished, sufficient work of Jesus fuels thanksgiving. Right? That's what's behind our prayers of thanksgiving. And every, every other blessing from God... And God is a good gift giver, amen? But every other blessing from God is a lesser blessing than the blessing of having your sins forgiven in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Him sacrificing His Son on the cross so that we could be reconciled. But look at a few other passages. I just want to make, make note of these, and I, and I don't think I got all of these to Josh in time, but some of them are, are there. But Philippians 4, 6, I just want to highlight some of these words in other places quickly for us. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything. Okay, so he's dealing with anxious-ridden Christians here. But in everything by prayer, okay, the word, supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Right, he gives this as a counter. Like, instead of anxiety, do this. Like, do, this do this. Approach it this way. Okay, Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. Okay, there's the heat. There's what Paul's addressing right there. So, he said, which are out of place, meaning out of place for Christians. Christians should have nothing to do with this. Instead, okay, instead of engaging with the filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking, let there be thanksgiving instead. Let there be thanksgiving instead. Colossians 2, 6 and 7 Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus of the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught. And he says, to, to walk established in the faith in this way, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? Again, there, there seems to be this priority here on this, this type of praying, if you will. And then a couple that I don't think are up on, will be up on the screen. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.2. Right? We give thanks to God. Always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, right? Thanksgiving for the people of God as you pray for them. Hebrews 7, 25, we see this intercession work. He's able, speaking of Christ, to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Christ, since he, since Christ, always lives to make intercession for them, right? We see how intercession plays out there, Christ doing that on our behalf, and certainly, we should be people that want to be like Christ, and we should be praying intercessory prayers for those that we know of that God's put in our uh, sphere of influence. Number three here. Okay, so so we're looking at the again overarching picture, various tones, words, vocabulary, emotions, moods that the Scripture can can help with as it relates to um, the diversity of our our our. Um, our prayer life, but we also see uh, what may seem a little bit out of place for us, but I'm going to bring in a little bit more context, but, but allowing the Scriptures to shape our prayers help us see there's no room for prejudice in them. Okay, allowing Scripture to shape our prayers helps us see there's no room for prejudice. Okay, we see Paul mentioned the urgent nature of prayer, right, the priority of prayer. We see, again, the different voices of prayer. And then he moves to tell us that we should warmly pray for all people. And we see this emphasis in our text all the way down to verse 7. Again, if you've got your Bibles, just kind of be looking at the text with me. But we see the phrase, for all people, Is what Paul says in in the second part of verse one. We see Paul specifically mention kings and all who are in high positions. And again, he does so when Nero is in a time of of power, right? We pray for the well-being of even wicked rulers that they may know the Lord and they may govern according to his word. And I haven't even mentioned the outworking of converted hearts, which is just beyond the scope of what I can emphasize this morning. But Paul says, so that we may lead peaceful, quiet lives, right? The gospel changes Culture changes society, and so we're, the, the, the conversion of the hearts of all people, and particularly the kings he's mentioning here, does lead to uh, a more peaceful, quiet life, okay? But then we see Paul says, God our Savior, that phrase he uses in, 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 in the greeting, we see in verse 4, um, he says, God our Savior desires all people to be saved. And then I didn't read this earlier, but in verse 6, See, that Paul says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. We'll look at that more next week. And in verse 7, we see Paul mention uh, the Gentiles. Okay? And, and let's remember specifically that Paul was tasked with preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, what exactly is going on in the church of Ephesus that would require this emphasis, right, from verse 1 all the way down to verse 7, really, of this all-people? Right. Some time back, for those of you of you that have been journeying with us uh, for a little while, some while back, we went through the Book of Ephesians, and, and in that letter. We saw the cultural tensions that seemed to be present, either racial tensions between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And and Paul addressed that issue there, that that they're one people covered under the sufficient blood of Christ Jesus. And and I would encourage you to go and look and read all of the book of Ephesians to get this. But I think that that's what Paul is up to in this section of the letter as well. He's leaning against sinful prejudices that extend all the way to governing authorities. That is, I I think the reason he mentions... Kings and uh, kings and all who are in high positions in verse 1. And the reason he mentions Gentiles in verse 7 is because there's prejudice that has uh, seeped and found its way into the church of Ephesus at the time. And, and it's important that we see these phrases, all people, when God desires all people to be saved, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, in that context, otherwise, we're going to misinterpret and we're going to misapply this part of the text. Now, if we don't do the legwork of understanding these phrases in their appropriate context, we can think, we begin to think something like this. We can begin to think that, that Ephesus and, and, and consequently our church is responsible for praying, praying for, let's say, every single individual. Right? That that would be impossible. We can't pray for everybody, right? We don't know everybody. But the text also can't mean that God will save every single person, right? We know it can't mean that. We know that there's a hell and we know that people that are not in Christ will spend an eternity there. The, the scripture is clear on this. We're not universalists, right? That's not our confession as Orthodox Christians, but it also can't mean that God wants to save everyone, but isn't powerful enough to do it. Right? The sweeping testimony of Scripture tells us otherwise God is all powerful, God is sovereign. Job declares this of the Lord after immense suffering. Job, this righteous man, declares in Job chapter 42, verse 2, I know, speaking to God, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. In in the story of Christ, before even Christ's incarnation, we see the prophet Isaiah says that it's the will of the Lord to crush him, to crush the son. It says he has put him to grief. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, we see the prophet Isaiah in other places say that it's the Lord alone who declares the end from the beginning. Your kids get asked this question in the back. Can God do all things? They answer this, yes, he can do all his holy will, just in case we were wondering. So it can't be that God wants to save everyone, but he's not powerful enough to do it. This is why context is crucial. And in leaning into the context for the right interpretation of this passage, we're avoiding two ditches, two very critical ditches. The first ditch is elitism. That's that's a ditch we want to avoid. The second ditch, and I've already mentioned it, is universalism, okay? So ditch one, elitism. Ditch two, universalism, right? The grace of God should humble us. It shouldn't puff us up. If we find it puffing us up, there's a worship disorder somewhere in our lives. But there may have been this elitism of sorts going on at Ephesus. The Jewish uh, believers were still getting used to this idea that the gospel was also for the Gentiles. And Paul not only reminds them of this, but he tells them, pray for them, right? Pray for them. And with that context included, our phrase I would argue these phrases, when we see all people here, is better translated contextually as all types of people. Pray for all types of people. God saves all types of people. We're to pray for the eternal good, the eternal well-being of all types of people. Our prayers can never be prejudiced, right? There's no room for the sin of partiality in our prayers. So we pray for people who aren't like us, right? We pray for people from different cultural backgrounds. We pray for those in governing positions, even if we didn't vote for them. And specifically, we pray for their eternal good, which means that we pray that they will come to know and cherish Christ and forsake sin. There's no room for elitism. The Bible calls the church the elect of God, and that shouldn't produce pride in us. That should humble us. And we know that the gospel was given to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, which is all of us in this room, to my knowledge, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. And this doctrine of election, I think, was having this puffing up effect, if you will, with Jewish believers in the same way that Christian liberty puffed up the Gentiles, when in reality, the grace of God and all his gifts, again, should humble us. It humbled Paul, the chief of sinners, that we saw in chapter 1. It should humble those in Ephesus, and it should humble us now. So if you're a Christian this morning, you need to hear this anew. It's all of God's work. It's all of God's work. Grace is a gift just as much as the faith to believe it is a gift. And the gospel of God is far reaching to any sinner. To any sinner. And I love these words of of us being the sheep of Christ. John chapter 10, verses 25 to 28. Jesus said to them, I told you, he's talking to the religious leaders, I told you, and you don't believe. The works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep." In the verse 27, "My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them, He gives a sheep eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. How comforting and humbling is that. That is good news to sinners like us. Amen. How much security should that instill in us as believers? You hear because you're a sheep. Being a sheep produces a hearing believer. The regenerating of your heart, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, is the only reason that you cry out to God for salvation. Christ alone is the giver of eternal life, and this, according to John and all other places in, all these other places in Scripture, this is an imperishable salvation because you were never the foundation of it. Nothing will snatch you out of the hands of our good Savior. The Holy Spirit wants to root out any pride in our lives, and that's what he's doing in our text, particularly among the Jewish believers here. Therefore, he uses this expression, all people to demonstrate that the gospel is for all different types of people. There will not be a people group not redeemed. There will be people that spend an eternity in hell, but there will not be a people group missing when we all stand around the throne and sing in Trinitarian format, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So our prayers shouldn't represent a sort of elitism, and neither should our lives, right? The second ditch, and just quickly, is universalism because I've already mentioned it already. The early church would have never, never thought that that Paul meant that God will save every single person. They would have never have thought that, right? Given the ministry of Christ, right? Given the, the forerunner of Christ, John the Baptist, this was clear to them, and, and that's what we need to be on, be clear on as well. There's one exclusive way to be reconciled to God, and that's through Christ, right? Only those that are in Christ will enter into everlasting peace. One theologian and commentator from the early 1500s, he, he put it best. He says, it's as if he, speaking of Paul, said no one is hindered by their vocation, no one is hindered by their class that they're placed in, As long as it's not repugnant to the word of God, they may come to salvation. And therefore, we ought to pray for all kinds of people, but we cannot infer from this that God endues every person particularly with grace or predestines everyone to salvation. Similarly, as in the time of the flood, all living creatures are said to have been saved in the ark with Noah, even though there were in fact only some of every kind gathered in it. Now, think of how this shapes our prayers and consequently our lives today. And I'm pressing in on this because we need to internalize it. We need to first and foremost thank God for the work He's doing in our lives. We need to be thankful for the work He's doing in our lives. We all come from various backgrounds. We should thank God for the gospel of grace in each one of our lives. It should drive us to humility. And it should drive out any form of bitterness. It should drive out any form of self-righteousness that may be cultivated in our inner person. And furthermore, this mindset should not only shape our heart posture toward the Lord, but it should shape our heart posture toward other people with one another. We should have warm interactions with each other, even amongst differences, because the gospel saves all different types of people, even the weird people. And if you don't know any weird people... You're the weird person. <clears throat> yeah. but, but we need to diligently pray for the salvation of people who aren't like us, the salvation of people we may be tempted to be prejudiced against. Right? And we need to be careful to, to hit all the, the tones and the notes of prayer and so there's things that certainly we've done, and, and I hope that you can, you can take it and, and cultivate it in your own life. But I don't want you to neglect, just even from a practical standpoint, how we've organized our worship God to do this very thing. Right, we want to pray for the flourishing of each other, which is why we try to pray for our members and regular attenders regularly in the worship God. We want to pray for gospel-preaching churches that we partner with. We want to pray for our missionaries. We want to pray for our countries. We want to pray for politicians, both at a local and a national level. We want to be a people that prays for all types of people. We want to pray that the far-reaching gospel of God will transform all people, and we must trust that, that that will happen as God's kingdom advances. We pray and trust that the gospel of God will spread to every nook and cranny of the earth, and we pray and we trust that the gospel of God will spread in every nook and cranny of our lives as well. Prayer is worship. Prayer is a priority. Prayer should shape us. A few quotes from church history, and then I'm going to give us our takeaways and pray this morning. Prayer is an earnest and familiar talking with God. Prayer is the only witness to show whether we have faith or not. Prayers not felt by us are seldom heard by God. Three directions for prayer. Pray till you pray, pray till you're conscious of being heard, and pray till you receive an answer. Here's our takeaways for this morning. Prayer is worship, and worship is the priority of God's church, and this is in your worship, God. Secondly, prayer is effectual. God uses it to accomplish His sovereign plan and purpose for our lives and the lives of others. Three, biblical prayer and prejudice are incompatible. Four, allow the Scripture to give the tone, words, and scope of your prayers. And then five, All people groups will be represented in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, our prayer should reflect a warm and eager heart for God to reach the nations. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for our time in it. We ask that you would use it to build us up in you. And we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the... uh, the pinnacle of our service, if you will. We all come as Christians to the Lord's table. And if you're a guest with us, we don't require membership for you to partake in the, uh, the Lord's Supper. What we ask is that you're a Christian that's confessing sin.